Today's episode is brought to you by the Winnebago Industries Foundation and is part of a series highlighting pioneers in outdoor and adventure accessibility. If you don't know your why, then it's really easy to buckle under the negative headspace or the the, the tough moments. But if you can keep in mind why you're out there or you know what you're trying to accomplish, then you know you just kind of keep bringing that to the forefront of your mind. My goal today is to cross the finish line, and every step I'm taking is getting me closer to that finish line. Sometimes it's not pretty, but if I can just kind of keep moving forward, then I'm working towards that goal in some way or another. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no-barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Today, thanks to the generosity of Winnebago, we have an amazing conversation with Amy Rusecki, who's the owner of Beast Coast Trail Running and the race director for the Vermont 100-mile race. She herself is also a winning endurance athlete, representing the USA at World Trail Championships three times. Amy is a true barrier breaker in the ultra community. She successfully petitioned for the Vermont 100 to be the first ultra race in the country to recognize athletes with disabilities in their own division. She has made bold moves to push past gender barriers, creating non-binary divisions in all of her events. And she has led conversations nationwide about how to better manage gender equality within the race industry. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the No Barriers Podcast. We are really excited today to meet Amy Rosecki. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And and mm-hmm. Eric, I know we are surrounded by you know extraordinary people in the No Barriers community, and Amy is no exception. Um, I'm you know Amy has just like a list of accolades that's so amazing. But like for me, I, I'm really excited today to talk about how people who um, really commit to do extraordinary physical things, how they do it and how they how they keep doing it over and over. And, and Amy's a coach. So she not only does it for herself, but she's a one, you know, coach of the year award uh, multiple times for coaching others to do it. And I just think for any listener who's listening today who is either you know good or struggles with setting big and bold ambitious goals and tries to stick to it, like today I think is going to be just a really interesting conversation about how we push ourselves to to be yeah. our best. But also, Dave, in terms of the the next step, which is then how do you take what you love and then use it to elevate the world in some way? So I think that we'll get a lot of ideas around that as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So no, so, no pressure yeah. there, Amy. That's yeah. You know, that, we're just giving you yeah, some we hints. Set you up well there. Oh boy, <laughs> I'm scared of myself now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're intimidated. Don't look in a mirror. I know, right? <laughs> wow. So you are the owner of Beast Coast Trail Running and also um, 
the director of, of a bunch of races, including the Vermont 100. But you also were a competitive runner and uh, you were in like the trail world championships and you placed number one in, for, for women in uh, America. Uh, so that's pretty wild. So you have this long history of competing, not just directing races, but competing as well. And so, so like, I'm just, I want to dive into like just one question, which is like, so what do you do for like 20 hours when you're running? What do you think about? Like, do you sing songs in your head or, um, play, um, hangman? Like what's, what's going on? Oh gosh. Sometimes that's way too much time in your head. I'll be honest. Um, no, I, I mean, I'm someone... I mean, I love running, obviously, but I re- part of what I love most about it is the community and getting to talk to people. And so a lot of times I'm not running alone. I try to latch on to someone and just have an awesome conversation and get to know them and let the energy of that conversation and getting to know a new person or getting to know a friend better, just kind of let that carry me through as many miles as it can. It, it makes the miles go by. It makes amazing memories it means you have somebody to talk to when you see an awesome view, you know, so you're not the crazy person, just, you know. But don't they say if you can have a conversation and you're not running hard enough? Yeah, I mean, the great thing about <laughs> I know, right? But when you're over running, if you're out of breath, you're not going to make it 100 miles. Got it. So, <laughs> you, so you have to keep it under that threshold. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but beyond that, you must have some strategies, right? Like, how do you keep yourself motivated when you're just feeling crushed and you know, like, I, cause I work out and, you know, do some endurance things, nothing like what you do, but I, uh, you know, like when you're running or working out for a long time or on some big mega climb, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of things that motivate me, but as you get more tired and more exhausted and more grumpy, those strategies start to fall apart a little bit. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've learned about myself in general is um, when I start to have those negative thoughts, it's normally that I am, my energy is running low. So normally my response to this, you know, negative headspace is, all right, let's take in some energy, you know, let's have a gel or let's have a uh, Swedish fish, which is kind of my, my secret sauce when I'm out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But I think beyond that, I mean, anybody that does any, you know, anything extreme, you, you have to know your why and that pushes you through it. And that's true for so many things that we do, you know, for the ultra running that I do, but even for, you know, people that are out there that are running, you know, a really fast 5k or people that are out there that are climbing Everest or, you know, anything, if you don't know your why, then it's really easy to buckle under the negative headspace or the, you know, the, the, the tough moments. But if you can keep in mind why you're out there or, you know, what you're trying to accomplish, then, you know, you just kind of keep bringing that to the forefront of your mind. My goal today is to cross the finish line. And every step I'm taking is getting me closer to that finish line. Sometimes it's not pretty, but if I can just kind of keep moving forward, then I'm working towards that goal in some way or another. I hate to ask you this because it's like, I, it's sort of like the typical question, but you, you, you went right into the bucket. So what is the why for you then? What was the why when you were competing? I mean, you're still competing. I am. I am. Yeah. Not not quite competing as fast as I was. Yeah. Yeah, still competing. Yeah, I mean, I guess the why for me changes, but a lot of it is um, that feeling when you cross the finish line and you're like exhausted, but you've achieved something great. That that for me is a big part of the why. But I think also I've been someone who just, I always crave adventures. And, you know, when I was younger, 
you could you could do these longer adventures because you had summer vacation and you could do stuff. Now that you work, you have to cram those adventures into really short periods of time. And that's where I found ultra running kind of fit that niche because I could have an adventure uh, all day Saturday and then go back to work on Monday and not have to take any time off. I'm, I'm curious, Amy, because I love this idea and it's something we we teach a lot about at No Bears is, is find the why because that will drive you through the adversities that you're going to face and will lead, lead to more fulfilling. So you're, you're also a, a coach of other people. So is part of the coaching process to help people find their why? And if so, like, how do you do it? I mean, yes. Yeah. Well, just a short answer. Yes. That's what we do. And so, um, yeah. How do you do it? No, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, I, I actually end up most athletes that I coach, I feel like I end up becoming good friends with them. You just end up getting so intimate. And through those intimate conversations, that's where the why comes out. You know, I, I have an athlete that I just started working with about a month ago. And she actually sent me this email today where, you know, when we first talked, I was like, you know, I just want to know, like, what what are the goals? And, you know, what are the long-term goals? What are the short-term goals? What are we working towards? And it took her a month of us working together. And she sent me this really long, beautiful email today where she was finally willing to say out loud, like, I think I want to work towards winning a race. I think maybe I have that capability, especially if you're pushing me. And so now we're going to have a better relationship anyway, because we've kind of, she's been willing to say that out loud. But she also put that out there. And, and I think there's also a, an element of accountability. Once you say something like that out loud, it holds you accountable. Um, when, I was, when I was dreaming of making my first U.S. trail running team, I remember it was one of these goals that I was so scared of and, and yet wanted so badly. And, and I feel like the breakthrough happened when I was willing to be on a trail run with a couple of close friends and I said it out loud. And just saying it out loud made it real, but it also meant that then all of my friends were on board. You know, they weren't going to just be like, okay, good luck with that. Instead, they were like, all right, Amy, let's let's push this uphill because you have this goal and I want to help you achieve it. Um, and so, you know, by by saying these things out loud, as scary as it is, and as much as you may or may not achieve them, it at least, it helps you to kind of create this community around you of people that want to support you and help you get there. And that just makes it that much easier to potentially achieve it. You know, so I'm just reading this book and it's okay. But I won't even mention the name, but it's talking about value. So you value one thing over the, uh, over something else. And so you got to own that, you know? And so, so you value that experience and that good feel of competing and being a part of that community um, over some of the other things. Like for instance, it's hard on your body, right? Like I know at 52 trying to, you know, climb, I have these long 20 hour days in the mountains and my back hurts, my knees hurt. I know I'm doing damage to my body, but the value of the climbing experience for me is, is, is bigger than, than the damage I'm doing. And, you know, and now as I'm getting older, I'm trying to figure out how to be more integrated, more well-balanced in my life. So it, it, you know, with ultra running, it's pretty extreme. Is there, is there any way to be integrated and well-balanced and, be an extreme competitor? I mean, do the two go together or is it really impossible? I mean, yes, they go together and sometimes they don't. But I think if we're talking about values, I also value a long relationship with running over a couple of results. You know, I'm not someone, I, I think there's some people that have accomplished some extraordinary things, but they've been, you know, kind of a, a flash in the pan. And I'm right. not knocking that at all, but you know, I've been running since I was, I don't know, 10 years old. And so at this point I've been running 30 years 
and I want to keep running another 30 years. And so part of that is, you know, taking the extra day off when you have a little niggle or um, integrating cross training into it, stuff like that. But I've also found that the trails are less harsh on the body than road running. So there, there certainly is an element of doing the trail running, even if you're doing, you know, ultra distances, I think isn't isn't quite as harsh on your body as like training for a road marathon and just pounding, you know, mile after mile after mile on the pavement. And you think it's possible to like be healthy and uh, not obsessive when you're just so (laughs) focused on something that's like, you know, 99% of the world will never do. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think there's... Um, when I ask some of these questions, by the way, at a part of a podcast, I'm kind of asking myself, <laughs> I'm asking questions to you that I want to know for myself too, you know? So so uh, d- don't take it personally. It's fine. No, I think there's an element of, um, like you have to be a little obsessed to kind of be able to achieve these things because, you know, you can't, you know, you can't run a hundred miles if you're only running once a week, if you're not right. you know, obsessed enough to like put in the day after day after day training. But I don't think you right. have to be so obsessed that you, you know, never drink alcohol or, you know, only eat, you know, clean foods or that sort of thing. Certainly you can get there that way, but I don't think that you have to do these things or that you have to do hundred mile weeks or that your entire world has to revolve around it. So... Yeah. So it, it sounds like it is kind of a, a tricky line between, yeah. uh, you know, to, to, to live a great, good, healthy, fun, integrated life and also, you know, have a bit of that obsessiveness of like w- discipline and training. Right. I'd love to hear how you got into the, the you said you've been running since the age of 10. Yes. Uh, have you always known you're going to like be an athlete as your career? Uh, was this something that came at a different time in your life? Tell us a little bit about how you got into this place in your life. It's, I mean, it was kind of a long journey. I'll, I'll say that I, I grew up in one of those families where like we went camping all the time. We did orienteering when I was really young. So that was kind of my first exposure to like running and kind of being in those sort of competitive running through the woods experiences. Um, and then we actually started cross-country ski racing um, at around that time too. So that was, that was kind of my sport um, through, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, all of that time. I guess I would have said I was a cross-country skier who ran to stay in shape. But yeah, then it was just kind of this long journey of everyone kind of did marathons after college. So you felt like you had to run a marathon. I ran myself into an injury, then started. So then I started biking and I did triathlons. But one of the things, my sister lives, I have an older sister. She lives, you know, six hours away from me. And one of the ways that we stayed connected, especially throughout my 20s. So like our first several years of being apart was once a year, we would find a race and we would do it together. And and not necessarily next to each other together, but we both kind of had ex- experienced things together. So, you know, our first marathons were on the same day. Um, you know, we both did the same one. We did a ski marathon together one winter. Um, we did a triathlon together. We did our first half Ironman together. So a lot of these things that we tried to do together. And so so it's about connection too with family and so forth and friends. Yeah. It was a neat thing anyway. So, um, so we kind of like, at one point it was, let's do a trail marathon together. So that kind of got me a little bit into the trail world to just kind of try this whole thing out. But yeah, I mean, I, 
it's kind of this funny story how I got into ultra running specifically. And I, I guess I'll kind of say that it was, it was halfway through like one-upsmanship or a, a bet gone wrong, or I don't know, just kind of one of those things <laughs> where like, you know, I, I was doing one of those like relay races where, you know, several people run 200 miles throughout mm. the two day period and I needed another teammate. And I didn't, this, this new guy had just started at my work and I didn't want to approach like a random new guy and be like, Hey, you want to spend 24 hours in a van with me and my friends and we're all going to be stinky. And you know, like that just felt really awkward. So instead I was like, Oh, you're a runner. Hey, have you read this book, ultra marathon, man? you know, maybe read it and, you know, see what you think and whatever. And so he read it. And afterwards it's like talking about how, you know, oh my gosh, I feel like such a slacker. I feel like I should do more. And I said, oh, great. I need this runner. And so I like manipulated him onto this (laughs) team with us and just kind of thought that would be it, you know? And then it was like a month later after he could like walk again, because PS, he wasn't actually trained for what I manipulated him into doing. But once he could walk again, then he was like, hey, Amy, I heard of this race. It's called the Vermont 50. And all of a sudden it was like the gauntlet was thrown down and it was like, now I've got to do this too. Hmm. And, and you know, kind of the rest is history. Like you do it once. And with anything that's the right thing for you, you do it once. And all of a sudden you're like, God, that was horrible. What I could have done better if only. And you just, you know, the day later you're searching for the next adventure or the next race that you want to do. But yeah, I guess getting back to the beginning, it's like it kind of all came from my family always being the family that was like outdoors and we were always adventuring and and all of that. So so you competed in the Vermont 100 five times, was it? All sub 20s? Really Six amazing. Times. Really impressive. Six times, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Six times, sorry. Oh, out. Okay. Punch me. <laughs> well, five times sub 20, but I finished it six times. So yeah. yeah. And so ultimately you become the race director. So how did that happen? I mean, I volunteered um, <laughs> is mm-hmm. the answer, but you know, it, it kind of came at a time when there were a couple of other big races at the time that had gotten bought out by corporations. And, you know, I didn't think that was the best fit for the Vermont hundred. Here's this race that I, I love and I loved the community and everything. And I think I was just scared that if a corporation took over, it was going to lose the essence of what made it so special to me and so special to the community. And so when they put the call out and said like, Hey, we're, we're, you know, basically interviewing for anybody who might be interested in directing. I, I, I put my hand up more as I might not be the right solution, but I'm probably a better solution than big corporations. So I'll at least throw my hat in the ring to try to be someone that ensures that this stays you know, the community event and the, you know, the vibe that I fell in love with and that everyone falls in love with at that race. Because yeah. a lot of the races have been bought out, like Anytime Fitness, I think bought like Leadville right. 100 and stuff like that, right? So that's what you're talking about. Yeah. And you guys are still independent. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So you have a full-time job in yes. engineering and then you make this additional commitment to training for ultra races and, you know, finishing in the top, you know, of those races, which is amazing. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) As a race director, you started bringing in adaptive divisions into the race and you have this, you created this great partnership with Vermont Adaptive. You know, what was your connection with disability, you know, to kind of be the impetus for that? And did any of the races uh, when you started have adaptive division or, you know, any of these special divisions for, for different kinds of abilities? 
Yeah. So um, the Vermont Hundred was actually started as a fundraiser for Vermont Adaptive. So that relationship between the two started long before me. Um, okay. But it was always a relationship that they had, but there was never the adaptive the adaptive athletes participating per se. So that, you know, that relationship already existed when I started RDing. But um, you know, it it took um it it's it's kind of a funny story. It took a participant who was gonna do the race to kind of ultimately, you know, the end of the story is we get the athletes with disabilities division. He had reached out to me because you needed to get a qualifying race in order to qualify to do Vermont hundred. And so he emailed me and said, you know, Amy, I, I want to do Vermont hundred, but I'm going to do only 45 miles at this race to qualify. And the, the rules are that you have to do at least a 50 mile or longer within certain time periods to do it. So he was asking permission to run shorter. And so I gave him the standard answer. I'm sorry, you've got to at least run 50. You know, hopefully you can make that happen. And he, he emailed me back and said, yeah, no problem. I just need to find a guide. And that's when I like paused for a second and actually looked at the signature on the list and realized that like his tagline was like blind beer runner. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. like I stepped in it. Right. And so ultimately what my response back to him was like, well, listen, I've never guided before, but if that's what's standing in your way, I'll learn how to do it and I'll take care of you. Like, just let's not let this be a barrier. Let's live within the rules, but I'll help if need be. And ultimately he, you know, he emailed back and said, great, you're guiding for me. I'll teach you what you need to know. And I went out there and I guided for him for 15 miles so that he could get 60 miles to get, you know, above the qualifying standard. And in that conversation, we started talking about, you know, Vermont 100 has this relationship with Vermont Adaptive. How come there isn't, you know, a deeper connection there. And that's when, you know, basically we worked together and kind of in those 15 miles, we dreamt up having an athletes with disabilities division at the Vermont hundred. And, you know, and I'm proud of that. There wasn't, that didn't exist in trail or ultra running before we did that at the Vermont hundred. And I'm actually really proud that there's several races across the country that are doing it to the point where I don't think anyone remembers where it started. And I think that's a great thing because now it's it's so much more accepted across the country. Didn't that blind runner go back and finish? The, he did the 100, right? Is that this guy? Is his name Rabideau? I keep yeah, reading about Kyle him Robido. in your articles. Yeah, it's Kyle Robideau. And, Robideau. Um, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, and he's finished Vermont 100. He's finished the 100 miler once and the 100K once. He might have done it multiple times, but I know he's at least run the 100 mile and the 100K before. And what was that like guiding him? Tell me about like what you learned um, because I mean, I run trails, they're rocky and I'm tripping and it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky way to, to go to, yeah. as a blind runner. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's amazing what he's able to do. It's, I mean, it's, I, I have to just kind of constantly be learning. He's really good at kind of giving me feedback where at times he's like, you, you know, Amy, just say this next time. Because at times there would be so many rocks and I would be like, I don't know how to explain this. I don't know what to say. So I'd yeah. like, rock, 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 rock. <laughs> so I would like slow myself down to give myself time to say everything. And at times he's like, Amy, let's just kind of just say this and, you know, blow through it. And, you know, and it's all good. But yeah, it's something that I have to I'm constantly learning and remembering kind of how to do it. 
Do you bungee cord yourselves together or how did you actually do it physically just to give people an idea? Oh yeah. So um, we'll, we'll bungee when we're on a road, which the Vermont hundred specifically does have a ton of dirt roads. So we can just be next to each other, either bungeed or just be kind of elbow to elbow without even the, the bungee cord. But when you're on trails, what he does is he actually runs right behind me. So he's kind of astride behind me. And so whenever I go over a rock, I'll, I'll say either like knees up if it's a big rock or I'll say toes up if it's a small rock. And then he just does whatever I tell him one stride behind me. So he hears it. And then his next stride, he either, you know, big step up, little step up, you know, toes up, knees up. And that's what he does. And, and it's amazing. Have you seen a lot of blood? He unfortunately falls about once every time I'm with him, which is probably, it's the worst thing in the world when you're guiding someone. And I know that like my mistake, like I'm not the one that's beat up after I make a mistake. I'm beating up a friend when I make a mistake. And that's probably the worst feeling in the world. Um, And unfortunately he always ends with blood on him. (laughs) (laughs) But he chose to be there, right? So, I mean, you don't own him, right? You're just there as an ally. So He's making the decision. So he owns that blood. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know. What kind of adaptive athletes have competed in the 100 now? What other kinds of abilities? Yeah. So we've had several visually impaired athletes, um, but we've had some uh, mobility impaired athletes. And that's the two classifications that we have is mobility impaired and visually impaired in the race. But, um, you know, one one of the guys that's done the race several times is this guy that, you know, in the New England scene, we call him Nipmuc Dave. And he's someone who's had horrible arthritis and just has no cartilage at all in his knees. And so he uses two arm crutches to finish. And so he he kind of puts the crutches down, swings the legs, and then, you know, moves the crutches forward and then swings the legs. And he does that for a hundred Oh my miles. gosh. He must have some serious calluses on his armpits. <laughs> he has, he has those like the crutches that like go around the, um, they kind of go around your elbow and then you hold on to them. Uh, he, okay, I mean, gotcha. like the duct tape that he has on his hands and on the grips by the end of the race, you know, cause he has to, yeah, there's a lot of rubbing and chafing that goes on and serious arm strength to finish that way. So it's amazing. By the way, one last thing I, um, I was running with my guide one time and he said, he screamed gate. And uh, I was like, what about my gate? And that's uh, when I slammed into the gate. So, yeah. so I, I bled a little bit myself. Because we've talked a lot now in this past 10 minutes about the Vermont 100 and started to paint a picture. For our listeners who have no idea what that is, tell people what is the Vermont 100? What is it like? What's the terrain like? You know, what's the range of start to finish times? Just give us a, a picture of what that is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's 100 mile running race. There's also a 100K running race. But the unique thing about it is actually it's it's also got a 100 mile horse ride at the same time. So it's runners and horses on the same course, which, um, you know, hundred mile races, kind of the, the genesis of it way back in the day was horse rides. And then at some point, like the famous story is, you know, some guy, his horse came up lame and he decided to run it anyway. And, you know, that's kind of when that, this thought got in people's heads of running hundred miles. So, you know, kind of our sport came from the ride and run but we're the only one that still holds both those events on the same day. A lot of them are separated. So it's kind of this cool experience of like nodding back to the history of this. But yeah, so it's it's in, you know, the beautiful rolling hills of Vermont. Um, it's about 70 miles of dirt road and then 30 miles of like Jeep trail. 
nothing super technical because the horses have to be able to ride the same thing. So it can't be, you know, this, this rocky mess that you can get in New England sometimes. Elevation change? What's the, is it, is it big elevation or is it pretty steady flat or? I mean, it's, it's never flat. There's no, okay. it's the big thing about Vermont is like, there's no flat section, uh, but there's no big climbs, but you get about 16,000, yeah, 16,000 feet of climbing uh, throughout wow. the Nile. So, um, and what's the range, like top finisher finishes and how much time and the final finisher yeah. takes how long? Your husband, right? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, like little, little, little brag here for a sec. Uh, my yeah, husband actually has the record. <laughs> yeah, so my husband has the course record, which is uh, fourteen hours and forty-seven minutes. So that's the fastest that any anyone's ever run the Vermont Hundred. And then we have a thirty-hour cutoff. So you know, literally, you have twice as much time as it took my husband to, to get it done. And if you're running thirty hours, do you take a nap in there, or you know? I mean, some people do, but a lot of people are just kind of steady, steady progress, um, which is kind of neat. I mean, the neat thing when you're looking at an ultra race is like, yes, there's these these young fit, you know, young guns that are just hammering. But there's there's all sorts of ages. You know, we we had a a guy a couple of years ago who was 75 years old that finished it and he finished it in under 29 hours. So you've got all sorts of ages You've got all sorts of body types. Like it's just, it, it can be one of those environments where everyone can succeed, which is which is really neat. So, if I'm an engineer listening to this, or you know, <laughs> and and I'm thinking, I, I would never have time to do my job and do this. Like this woman's ama- like she's got a an engineering job. She runs races. She has introduced an ad- adaptive a whole new line of like thinking about how we integrate adaptive. Like how do you encourage people who have day jobs to still carve out this part of their life? I mean, if they're anything like me, I, my runs every day, that that's kind of my me time. That's my time for my mental health. And I think if I didn't take that time, I'm going to be less productive in the day anyway and I think, you know, for a lot of people, especially, you know, with the pandemic and all the stress and everything that has gone around with that, um, you know, carving out the time in your day to to let you do something for you and to let you, you know, kind of sort your brain out a little bit. I think that that's I guess that's how I justify it is like this is what I need for mental health to get through the rest of the day is to take this time for me. Mm-hmm. I also also always throw out there that I don't have kids. I have a huge respect for people that do all the things that they do and are also like these amazing parents. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like I I certainly throw out there, I don't have kids. And so like Mm. listing all these accolades, be clear that that's not also something that I'm juggling, which would. Yeah. It makes it even harder, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Now, what about the non-binary division? That's pretty wild. So um, (laughs) how did that come about as the race director? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, first of all, like, it's one of these challenges that I feel like a lot of registration, like, registration companies, first off, won't even, they don't even offer the option for people to register as anything other than male or female. Um, And I'm fortunate that I work with a registration company that has offered that option for many years now. Um, so that was kind of the first hurdle right there was just allowing people to register as they identify. I, you know, I have a friend of mine who 
um, identifies as non-binary. And, you know, we were having a whole conversation about how they, at first, when they registered for races, they would register as female simply because they were a top-level athlete and wanted to be able to compete. So even though they identify as non-binary, there wasn't an ability for them to compete. Um, yeah, like to get the prize, they, they, they either have to sign up as a, a, a male or a female, right? right? So there's no option for them. Right. But then- Right, I see. Even once there was an option, a lot of races were like, okay, that's fine. You can register as non-binary, but that just means that you can compete for the overall male awards, you know, or basically uh-huh. overall awards, which, you know, by default in many races is the overall male awards, which I guess wasn't recognizing somebody who is an estrogen-based athlete who identifies as non-binary. And so really kind of what I've worked out for my races is if somebody registers as non-binary, I reach out to them and just say, you know, look, you know, I recognize that this is how you identify. If you would like to, you know, compete for the overall male category or female category, you just have to let me know whether you're, you know, an estrogen-based athlete or a, you know, testosterone-based athlete. And then, you know, you can still register and be recognized as non-binary as you identify, but allows them to compete for the, you know, the awards categories. And that has been, I've gotten a lot of great feedback on that from non-binary athletes that first of all felt welcome, but also felt recognized that they could still kind of race against their hormonal peers. But is there a category like a, like, can they win the first place for the non-binary division or you're saying they, they ultimately are competing in one or the other? They're ultimately competing versus their hormonal peers. Like if I were to be totally PC about it, rather than having a male category, I would call it the testosterone leaning category. Gotcha. And, you know, the female category, I would call that the estrogen leaning category. But um, I mean, I will say when I threw this out there and I've been doing this for many years now, but when I threw that out there, I, I basically said, this is probably not the right solution. But I felt like everyone was so scared of right. ha- finding any solution that they weren't willing to put anything out there. And so I was like, I'm at least going to stick my neck out and put something out there. And I hope that someone takes that, builds on it. I learn from it. And ultimately, like this conversation gets started and the right solution, the right fit ultimately gets decided. Yeah, I think this is beautiful because you're not saying like I have all the answers. Nobody does yet, but we're, we're tra- trying to figure it out. And if you're the first one to stick your head out of the foxhole... And then you get your head blown off like nobody's going to do it. So that's really beautiful and courageous that you guys have done this and you're trying to figure out what works. Right. Right. So and and uh, I haven't gotten any feedback on better ways to do this, although I'm sure there are better ways. Just a lot of people every time I mention it, people are like, that's awesome. I'm going to do that at my race. And so, you know, what? that's good, too. You know, at the end of the day, I want people to be able to register and be recognized as they identify within, you know, within the bounds of how these races are. And if you had a crystal ball, where do you think the the race industry will go in the future? I mean, like pick 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, you know, because like the Paralympics is a little confusing, for instance, like if you're an amputee, you get certain points and uh, if you're blind, you get certain points, right? And and it's like a little bit confusing because there's so many disabilities. And I imagine there's so many ways that people identify as well. Like you can't create a, a category for everyone, right. you know, for every little nuance in life. But at the same time, how do you approach that? 
I know. I, I wish I wish I knew the answer because then we would know like how to get there quicker. Um, yeah. But I, but I think the point is opening up a space where people can be themselves. And I think the trail community has done a great job. The trail and the ultra community have done a great job of allowing all sorts of eccentric people to express themselves. But one of the biggest hurdles has been gender issues. So, you know, recognizing people as they identify and not trying to pigeonhole them into male and female. Um, and then also like transgender runners and, you know, kind of when can they race as male? When can they race as female? And and some of that stuff, which at some races, I mean, I, I've heard some of the worst comments from people when they don't think anyone's listening. Um, but I've heard some of the worst comments from people that I can only imagine doesn't make transgender runners feel welcomed because they're being judged on, you know, who they were when they were born and not how they identify and how they live currently. Mm. Yeah. I imagine if you're competing as a trans person, that takes a lot of courage too, because you're kind of putting yourself out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And have you seen uh, some success stories there? I mean, my, I don't even know if it's a success story, but I am proud of the fact that, um, you know, we, we did have a, a male to female transgender who finished on our podium several years ago. And again, like talking about some of the horrible comments, the, the person, the female that finished right behind her, um, I, I overheard her brother saying to this third place athlete, like, well, you, you were really the second female on the day. And I just was like, oh my gosh. Um, I, you know, I, I hope that the person who finished second never heard that, but I also felt, you know, at least happy that I can recognize, you know, this athlete, I had, I had great conversations with them afterwards just to say, you know, educate me because I don't fully know, you know, how can I ensure that you're, you know, falling within the realm of, you know, female athletes and, and, you know, they just kind of reminded me that like, what am I winning a pair of shoes? You know, like no one's going to yeah. cheat their gender to win a pair of shoes. The reality is they're living like this. You know, if they, if they are female, they're getting their test or their estrogen checked regularly, their testosterone checked regularly. It's an entire lifestyle and it has nothing to do with running. It has nothing to do with anything. It has to do with them being their true self. And, you know, the last thing they need is to be judged by anyone. <laughs> so, yeah. What's what are you training for next? What's on your horizon for uh, you know in the next year? Oh boy, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of, <laughs> I just wait until the inspiration hits me, really. And you know, right now it's so hard because so many races are full, and so I'm I'm kind of looking more towards 2022 and hopefully finding a 100 mile race that inspires me to to train up for. So. Yeah. And I heard quarantine hit you guys, um, you know, the COVID thing hit the race industry, the trail ride racing industry really hard. Obviously, you had to cancel a bunch of events. And uh, I read an article that you said it was really hard to process because your coping mechanisms were stripped away. And I'm assuming your coping mechanisms were running and volunteering as the race director, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because as a race director, like, Thing, things never go right on race day, right? Like I've never had a race that I've put on where everything is perfect and everything's been, you know, beautiful and awesome. Like there's always chaos behind the scenes. You know, my motto for race directing is to appear duck-like, you know? So like above the water, calm and placid, everything's okay, no matter how much chaos is going on below the water. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that's always the motto that I live by. And the tough thing about COVID too was like, we're used to as RDs always finding a way to overcome. And this was something where I wasn't able to overcome. I couldn't think my way out of it. And it took me a really long time to realize that. There was a long time where I was like, well, but maybe we can still put on the race if this, if that. Can we, you know, can we just start one person every, you know, two minutes for, you know, however, however long, mm. you know, everyone has to stay on opposite sides of the trail. Like I, my mind kept coming up with how can I think my way around this situation? Because that, as an RD, what you're constantly doing is just problem solving and working your way through these problems to still put on this seamless event. But it's so counterintuitive because, like, you're right. Like, certain things, there is no solution. There's no, like, secret way through. Right. And you're beaten. You're beaten by this thing. And you, but, but you ultimately did come up with a really cool idea, which is you ran a 100 race and raise some money. So, you know, and we talk about this at No Barriers, right, Dave? Like, you know, you look at this problem and you can't figure it out and you just feel so helpless and so beaten. And then you get this plan of attack and it gives you tremendous energy, you know, to really attack and walk into the storm. And so that's what you did. Tell tell us what you did. Yeah. So, and I, and I ended up doing this both last summer and this summer because Vermont 100, the, the, Vermont wasn't quite through COVID enough for us to have pulled it off this July. And so both both years on the date that Vermont 100 would have happened, I went out and ran 100 miles from my backyard and just ran various loops around my house. Um, and, and part of it was just getting back to like what made me fall in love with the Vermont 100 as an event, like what my first relationship with this event was before I was the RD was I, w- I was a runner, I was a participant. And so that allowed me to kind of experience that again. But I also used it as an opportunity, again, with that connection with Vermont Adaptive, I used it as an opportunity to fundraise for Vermont Adaptive. So that was really, um, really wonderful. And a lot of people got got behind that. And, you know, frankly, I used that as motivation when I, you know, both years, I, you know, the 60 to 70 mile mark is always a little challenging for me. And, you know, when I wanted to quit, all I could think was, oh, my gosh, a lot of people have, you know, essentially sponsored me running, uh, you know, for the day in a way. And you, you just kind of feel this obligation of like, you know, I made a promise to them that if they donated, I was going to do this thing. And now I have to do this thing. I love the fact that you, um, on your first run to fundraise for Vermont Adaptive, you stopped at mile 65 at your house and took a cold shower. I That's did. awesome. You can't <laughs> normally do that in a race. I know. That was actually wonderful. It was, you know, it was also neat. Like you finished the run both years. It was like I finished the run and then I was able to be like, all right, I'm going to go to bed. And like you walk up a flight of stairs and then you're able to follow. And then you're there. Normally <laughs> you get in a car. But you raised a ton of money for Vermont Adaptive. Didn't you raise like 15 grand the first time and maybe something similar the second time? So that's tremendous. Ooh. It was like 12 grand the first year and then about five grand this year. And I think so. Um, Mm. But one of the, one of the cool things this year that I want to throw out there is um, so Kyle, who we were talking about earlier, he actually came by to support me while I was running the race this year or running my run this year, I should call it. And he actually went out there and he, he paced me. He's the runner who happens to be blind. He's the, Yeah. Um, he's blind okay. ear runner. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so he, he paced me while I was, while he was out there and he made this comment while he was doing it, where he said, you know, that this is my first time ever getting to pace someone. And it's because typically when you're, when you're in a race, 
you can only have one additional person with you at any given time to like pace you through different sections. And because he needs someone to guide him, he's just never been in an opportunity. Like he's never had an opportunity for him to be able to support someone else the way that, you know, we've supported him for years. And so it was this really kind of perfect moment where because there were no rules at my event, I had another friend that was pacing him and he was, or guiding for him, sorry. And he was able to pace for me and kind of feel like he was giving back something that he'd never had the opportunity to do before. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, it felt really great to be like, you know, with this connection to Vermont Adaptive and everything to have, um, you know, Kyle having this experience and, you know, and he's such a supportive person anyway, that, you know, him sharing miles with me was exactly what I needed in those moments. So Amy, just to finish up, what ingredients like do you think make an ultra runner or a trail runner like what are the secrets are there a couple secrets like if somebody is thinking about like i want to do my first run or my first race is there something you could you know some advice or any kind of secrets you could you could give them a bit of a head start yeah i mean i i think the biggest secret is just to like one foot in front of the other and keep going until you reach the finish line um, and I somewhat say that in jest, but the reality is that <laughs> it is, you know, it's, it's, you, ju- you just keep moving and you kind of let go of any pretext of what paces you expect or when you should be running versus when you should be walking and that sort of thing. But I've also long since said that, like, I think that my greatest asset as an ultra runner was that I am just stubborn. I am a stubborn person. That's, that's who I am. And sometimes you need that stubbornness to just, you know, it, it gets you into trouble. It gets some stupid ideas in your head, but that also can at times lead you to the finish line when you probably should have said quit 20 miles ago. So, you know, st- stubbornness is also one of those things that, that certainly helps the uh, equation a little bit. But I imagine along the way, you know, in that hundred miles, there's so much beauty too. Like, have you had these moments where you're like in the middle of the race and you just look around and you're like, wow, this is amazing. Or, there's something amazing about how I feel or how I'm reacting right now. Yeah. And again, like those are some of the moments that, that fuel me to do the next one. You know, like I, I think particularly of this, I was doing this hundred miler in um, Washington state called Cascade Crest many Mm. years ago. And um, the race started at 10 o'clock in the morning. So everyone ran through the night and I was about at mile 85 when the sun started coming up and I was coming off this mountain. You had to do this like out and back to a peak and I was coming off that out and back and you looked out into the distance and like the sun's just coming up and you could see, I can't recall if it was Mount Hood or Mount Rainier or like what mountain you could see, but you could see some like snow tipped volcano, um, you know, with the sunrise behind it. And it was just one of those things where it's like, it still stands out to me nearly a decade later. Like that was probably one of the most beautiful things that I saw. But I think even if I had been on that mountain, but not at mile 85, I wouldn't have appreciated it. Cause it was also, I had been working for, you know, 18 hours of constant movement to get to this moment and to see that view. And it was me and my pacer and there was no one else to appreciate it with me. But it was just, it was one of those things that like, I will remember that view and that moment forever. And, you know, it's like, I have so many moments like that, whether it's sharing a mile with, you know, somebody that you've idolized your whole life or, you know, just accomplishing something that you've never thought possible, you know, crossing the finish line at UTMB. I mean, I, I ran slow. I had like the worst day ever there, but I crossed the finish line. I ran through Chamonix and 
everyone in the streets and, you know, that sort of thing. And like that moment, it's just, you, you get, you get addicted to those moments and then you just want to keep having more of them. <laughs> so. Yeah. Powerful. Well, Amy, for any of our listeners who have heard these uh, crazy adventures and struggles and think, I want to do that. I want to give it a try. Uh, tell us where our listeners can go to learn more uh, about you and the races you've mentioned. So Vermont100.com is the best way to find me. But um, I also do coaching through the run formula. So that's just the runformula.com. Okay. Um, so that's how to reach my coaching network. Yeah. And then other than that, just look up Beast Coast Trail Running and you'll find the other races that I put on. Great. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for all of your time. As always, listeners, uh, any of the organizations or things that were specifically mentioned in this podcast, you can take take a look at the show notes to find links. We appreciate all those listeners who joined us today and hope you took away some, some inspiration and some practical tools for you to use as you're moving forward and setting big, bold goals for yourself. Thanks so much, Amy. And thanks, Eric. Thank you, guys. Thank you. That's East Coast, guys. Guys. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. No barriers. We would like to thank our generous sponsors that make our No Barriers podcast possible. Wells Fargo, Prudential, CoBank, Aero Electronics, and Winnebago. Thank you so much for your support. It means everything to us. The production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman, and marketing support by Heather Zocali, Stevie DiNardo, Erica Hui, and Alex Schaefer. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Soon they will be fine.